The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on this episode of American POTUS, Ronald Reagan. This Hollywood hero achieved the biggest role on the world's biggest stage and went on to literally change the world. To a majority, his eight years were successful, but also full of challenges inside and outside of our borders. Ultimately, though, he's received the biggest award any actor slash president could ever want. The everlasting admiration of millions to this day. The Teflon president, the Gipper, Dutch, the great communicator, whatever you want to call him, we call him our 40th POTUS. And he's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Joining us for this discussion about Ronald Reagan is best-selling author Craig Shirley. To put it bluntly, if you want to know anything about our 40th president, you need to call this man. He's the author of four terrific books on The Great Communicator, and he's been hailed by the director of the Reagan Library as the, quote, unofficial official biographer of Ronald Reagan, unquote. Craig, Alan and I are big fans of your work. Thanks for joining us here on American POTUS. Thank you for asking me to come on, fellas. Uh, Craig, I know we share a, a mutual friend in Peggy Grandy. She had been a guest on American POTUS earlier and just a terrific person. Yes, she is. She and I became uh, acquainted and became friends in the president's post in the post presidency of Ronald Reagan, but uh, she wrote a, a very good book, and uh, we've been friends ever since for the last ten years. Craig, you and I, and I know Peggy share a great admiration for Reagan. How have you balanced that admiration with your work as a historian? I don't know. You know, that's an intriguing question. I think you have to go back to the to early days, having worked for Ronald Reagan. My wife's reign worked for Ronald Reagan. We both worked for the White House, the uh, for the Republican National Committee. I worked for the White House Conference on Small Business. We worked on President's reelection campaign in '84. So it was always an abiding interest. I was a political conservative, blended with the fact that I was a hit, was a, was somebody steeped in history. I was a history major in college. My father was an historian. And so I, so I was immersed in, in American politics and history from an early age. So it seemed kind of a natural course of things that, that for, for the first part of my life, I pursued politics as a profession. And the second part of my life, I pursued history as, as a profession. So I, I, if you look at my work, Reagan comes out the victor in my, in my books. But it's because Reagan is the victor. Because Reagan wins in 76, uh, he wins in 80, he wins in 84. So, so are the books favorable to Reagan? Yeah, but you know, there's not books around that are, that are anti-Reagan. So, so it seems to me that that's the, the greater balance is all the anti-Reagan books that are out there versus the pro-Reagan books that are out there. And I think you, you do a, a wonderful job. I've enjoyed them all immensely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, in 1968, Reagan made his first bid for the White House. Yes. And sometimes 
certainly when I was learning about Reagan, that was explained as kind of a favorite son type of campaign. But you reference it as a real effort to deny Nixon the nomination that year. How did that unsuccessful effort in 68 impact Reagan's political trajectory? He learned a lot losing in 68. uh, 68. He learned a lot losing in 68. He learned a lot losing in 76. And it was a, it was not a half. He liked to to joke that it was just a, it was a half-hearted effort in 1968. But as a matter of fact, Reagan made a full-out attempt to wrest the nomination from Richard Nixon in 1968. Yeah, you know, in those days, you you did the balloting by uh, by alphabet, and Nixon did not receive the Republican nomination until he was in the W's, until he was in Wisconsin. So, and in those days, you needed 600 some delegates win the nomination. He only won the nomination by a handful more than 600. Reagan got a respectable number of delegates. And may if he had started earlier and haven't been so half-hearted, he may well, he and Rockefeller conspired together to keep Richard Nixon from winning the nomination. They may well have succeeded if they started earlier. Do you think he was ready in 68 to be president? I think he thought he was ready. I think, he, you know, he was elected in 66. He's elected governor of what was then the second largest state in the country. Was he ready? No, probably not. He needed more seasoning as governor and as a national spokesman. Uh, he needed more seasoning on, on world issues. By 76, he was, by, by 76, he was definitely ready to be president and was obviously ready by 1980. He was, he was in a hurry. He was in a hurry. Don't, you know, he didn't switch parties until 1962 and he, age 56. So the clock was ticking on him by, ni- by 1968, and he felt it ticking, uh, and he was he was anxious to be elected president sooner rather than later. Now, in '76, he mounted an almost successful campaign against incumbent President Ford and for the Republican nomination. And then, when Ford won, he invited Reagan to the stage, and something unexpected happened that turned in really to the beginning of the 1980 campaign. Can you recount for our listeners That's right. what happened uh, that evening at the Republican National Convention? It was August 19th, 1976, Kemper Arena in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. It was on the other side of the river. I was not there that night, but my wife was on the floor that night in Kansas City at the Kemper Arena when when um, she was part of a, a, of a youth organizing Troop for, for ironically for Gerald Ford, and I've never let, never let her live it down. But <laughs> there was something really quite interesting that happened that night. Was that Gerald Ford, who was the incumbent president of the United States, gives a very good speech, probably the best speech of his life. He'd practiced for it hour after hour, hour using a teleprompter machine, using speech coaches and joke coaches. And Reagan spoke after him, which go, flies in the face of all protocol. All protocol says. The president is supposed to speak last. This night, Gerald Ford speaks last. Or Ronald Reagan speaks last. And he speaks for about seven minutes, but it's extemporaneous. It's from the heart. And in so doing and giving the speech, he upstages Gerald Ford and gives a barn burner of a seven-minute speech that sets him up. And I remember I, I interviewed a field organizer for Ronald Reagan at the time, Kenny Kling. And he was standing on the floor that night next to what he described as a big-time Gerald Ford supporter from uh, Florida. And halfway through Reagan's speech, 
she exclaims, but nobody in particular, in particular, she says, oh my God, we've nominated the wrong man. That summed up the feeling of a lot of delegates <laughs> in Kemper Arena that night, yeah. was that they had nominated the wrong man. And the party was split. The party usually is split. That night in Kemper Arena, there's half the delegates were for Gerald Ford, or Gerald Ford, half the delegates for Ronald Reagan. But by the time Reagan finished speaking, all the delegates were for Ronald Reagan. And, but it, it set him up very nicely to run in 1980 for president of the United States. If he doesn't give that speech, something curious happened to Alan, which I recorded in my book. After, after Reagan gives a speech, and don't forget, at the time, in 1976, there's ABC, NBC, and CBS, and PBS, right? There's no cable television. You know, either, you're either watching the conventions, which are on dabble dabble, right? They're on during the day, they're on the evening, they're on late at night, they're on early in the morning. That's all that's on TV. Or you don't watch television. You don't flip over to another channel. Now nobody watches conventions. And everybody mm-hmm. watched conventions. Reagan goes out that ball, campaign for Republicans running for office. And every place he goes, every place, people come up to him and say, oh, Governor, you've got to run just one more time. You've got to do it. you got to run just one more time. This is fall of 76. He's hearing this from chambermaids, from police officers, from bellboys, from cab drivers, from uh, airline pilots, stewardesses, going all over the country campaigning for Republican candidates and every place he goes. And this, I'm convinced, is what convinced him to run one more time in 1980. Because, uh, because when he left Kansas City, the everybody was writing Ronald Reagan's political obituary. that He was not going to run again. He was too old. He was riding off into the sunset. And he would never be president of the United States. And he runs in 1980, I'm convinced, because of the outpouring of, the, of grassroots people in, 19, in four years earlier. If you'd like to know more about Craig Shirley's terrific books on Ronald Reagan, simply visit AmericanPotus.com. We have a resource section there with links to all of his books, as well as more information on his background as a presidential historian. And while you're at the American POTUS site, send us a note and let us know of any other authors or books that you think would make for an interesting future episode. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. Well, in in your really great book, Reagan Rising, you talk about how many people thought his his, uh, chance had passed, but he kept himself in the public eye. How did he, in that four-year period, create the organization and the momentum that proved so successful in 1980? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Reagan, in those intervening four years, testified many times before Congress. He gave many, many, many major policy addresses. He led the charge on the Panama Canal Treaties, which was very fortuitous at the time, because almost every Republican senator who voted, and Democratic senator, who voted for the treaties and was up for re-election in 78, lost. This was a political loser for Jimmy Carter and for anybody who was for the treaties. Reagan led the fight against the Panama Canal treaties, and it was a big national issue at the time. Everybody in the country was talking about the Panama Canal treaties. And Reagan actually went live on national television at the invitation of CBS to outline why he opposed the Panama Canal treaties. It's something unheard of today, that a private citizen would be granted uh, an hour of airtime in, in prime time to go on national television to talk about his uh, opposition to the Panama Canal treaties. It really was uh, remarkable. But the Panama Canal treaties, there were actually two treaties. They passed Senate 
by the narrowest of margins. You needed, you need, as you know, two thirds of the Senate to approve a treaty. And I think it got one, one treaty got one vote more, one treaty got, the other treaty got two votes more. So, but otherwise there were squeakers. And the Republican senators and Democratic senators who all voted for the treaties, 77 to 78, went down to defeat. Most of them went down to defeat in 1978. It was such a, it was such a grassroots issue. And people were, were deathly opposed to giving away the Panama Canal Treaty, giving away the Panama Canals. So when, when we get to 1980, in your book, Rendezvous with Destiny, you detail his victory that year. But now looking back, it's almost as if he, he had no opposition. But of course, he did. And the initial momentum belonged to George H.W. Bush. How right, did yeah. Reagan in the Republican primaries that year overcome that, that initial Bush momentum? Yeah, that's such a good question. People forget that. In 1980, Reagan had serious primary opposition. He had Ambassador George Bush. He had Senator Bob Dole, who had been the ticket four years earlier with Gerald Ford. He had Senator Howard Baker, who was, considered, who was the Senate Minority Leader, who everybody in Washington thought was the best nominee for the Republican Party. He ran against uh, John Connolly, who was considered a political heavyweight. He ran against uh, uh, Phil Crane. Uh, Congressman Phil Crane and Congressman John Anderson, who were both considered to be intellectuals, it filled out a very impressive field. So Reagan had to wade through this thicket of Republican senators from uh, January up until uh, not, he didn't get the nomination until June 1980, when he wins California and some other states to deliver him a first ballot nomination uh, that year in Detroit. It was it was a very tough slot for Reagan, especially after losing Iowa. To George Bush, it was a huge upset and losing some other key primary states like Michigan and almost losing Texas to George Bush. So it was not an easy thing whatsoever for Ronald Reagan. He only really turned it around for himself when he took control of the campaign himself. And he himself decided he wanted to be president and he was going to fight like hell to win the nomination. Got off his uh, keister and started really burrowing down to uh, win the nomination because he'd been, he'd been coasting. For the last couple of years up until then. Now, we know after he won that difficult nomination, he, he then had to take on the incumbent President Carter. Yes. We recently spoke with Jonathan Alter about his new biography of Carter, and certainly the incumbent president faced a lot of issues that year, the energy crisis, the Iranian, Iranian hostage crisis, and so forth. How did Reagan approach that, that campaign? What were his key themes? And given his challenges, how did, how did that whole contest play out? Very interesting question, Alan. Basically, Carter was more of a, of a liberal populist, and Reagan was more of a conservative populist. But both of them were very skeptical of Washington and the powers that be in Washington. Now, Carter, when he ran '76, ran as a conservative, and when he arrived in Washington, he tried to govern as a conservative. He tried to do so for two years, but after being in Washington for uh, two years, he slowly he started slowly moving to the left. But Jimmy Carter in 1976 was not the liberal that he is perceived to be today, or, the, or even the modern. He was much more conservative than, then than he is now. Reagan had these tools at his command to use against Carter. You mentioned the energy crisis. He had the hostage crisis. He had the whole Cold War issue in the Soviet Union to use as an issue. He had, here in the United States, he had high interest and high inflation rates uh, to use as issues. And Reagan is a new kind of conservative. Reagan was. He didn't campaign just as somebody who is against against big government or against this or against that. 
he offered solutions, and they were they were a uh, they were based in sending power away from Washington back to the states and localities. Very you know, freedom based philosophy, which he which he uh, believed in. Uh, something going back to the framers, power of Washington in check. That that Reagan Revolution, those ideas he brought to Washington. How did you, you studied this man more than perhaps anyone else? How how did how did he come to those ideas? What was that process over his lifetime of, of putting together that kind of coherent Reagan revolution philosophy? It is a philosophy that's happened to him over a lifetime. The idea of, uh, of high taxes came to him in the 40s when he was in Hollywood. Something like 95, 91, 95% of his income was being taxed. He later, when he became head of the Screen Actors Guild, and there were communist provocateurs who attempted to infiltrate trade unions there, he acquired his uh, anti-communism uh, in Hollywood in the uh, late 40s and 50s. His uh, social conservatism, he doesn't acquire until much later. As a matter of fact, Reagan was, as, as everybody knows, or a lot of people know, Reagan used to be pro-abortion. But for him, it was, a libertarian, it was a libertarian issue, and that's really at the heart of it. Reagan was really a small-L libertarian. He believed in the, the individual. He believed in the self. And he believed in the superiority of the individual to the uh, state. And, you know, if you look at his speeches, Alan, even as president, how many times does he mention the individual in the speeches? He really, he really believed this. And this is, this is what became his organizing philosophy, was a kind of a small L libertarianism. It's called, I mean, it really is Reaganism, which is kind of a unique political philosophy, at least according to uh, uh, the dictionary. This is honed over 20 or 30 years, and he's not really fully formed as an American conservative until 1980, because then by that time, he acquires the social message, but he also acquires some of the economic messages like the tax cut, which he hadn't had before, which fit into his framework of of taking power away from the state and sending it to an individual. And that's what really what the tax cuts were always about for Reagan. It wasn't just about sending money to the individual, but it was, it was about empowering the individual and dispowering the state, giving taking power away from the state and giving, giving it to the individual. That's what it really was about for Reagan. Reagan's struggle with Alzheimer's and how his beloved Nancy was always by his side is next. But first, we want to remind you to visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You can easily find more information on this episode's guest, Craig Shirley, and his many terrific books. And be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. So your very touching book, Last Act, tells us the story of Reagan's fight with Alzheimer's. What did you learn about both of the Reagans, Nancy and Ronald, by studying those difficult years? Mrs. Reagan went through a lot of sacrifices for him that he, if he'd had a chance, he would not have asked her to do whatsoever. He would have, uh, he would, I mean, if he had his brothers, if I think if he had his brothers, he would have, he would have uh, found another solution that didn't involve her. And it was a terrible, those nine, 11 years that she went through with him and the Alzheimer's, you know, she was always thin, but then she lost more weight. She wasn't going out with her girlfriends. She was attending to his every need for 11 hours, for 11 years. And this took a terrible toll on her physically and otherwise. I saw her at the, at the Centennial. My wife and I saw her. She was then confined to a wheelchair. 
but her eyes still glisten and she was bright and she was charming. We talked to her. She was charming. But the, the, that time of the, the uh, Alzheimer's was really a, 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 just, there's no way to describe it other than it was a very, very tough time and uh, it did a lot more. They always had hearts. I won't say that they developed hearts or they became more charitable. They were always charitable. They always had hearts. But they did more, like with the Pediatrics AIDS Foundation and with other AIDS foundations to help them raise money for research. I became friends with Dr. Paul Glasner because his wife contracted AIDS through a transfusion. She became friends with, with, uh, with other actors because of their afflictions. They did a lot for charity when they could do a lot. And, and he did right up until the end and uh, as much as he could after his presidency. So looking back at his public life, you know, Reagan, and still today, Reagan was both vilified and at the same time underestimated by his opponents. Why, why did this man evoke such an intense response from his opponents and from many in the press? I think is because he was certain of his ideas. He was uh, certain of, he was uh, he was always a learned, book smart individual. He read something like a book on the order of a book a week and six new newspapers a day and countless policy memos, things like that when he's president. There's a, there's a man who was very certain of his ideas once he once he acquired them. He, he tossed them around, he thought them through, he looked at them upside and downside, and then he had, then he adopted them as his own. And I guess part of the reason he evoked such anger among his opponents was that he was he won? Was he, you know, won in 80? He won in 84. He won key votes. He was very popular. He was dismissed as a Teflon president. When he left office, he had an approval rating of something like well over 70%, 76% some, some polls. It's a man who got things yeah. done, who got conservative things done, who was certain of the ideas and said so and spoke them. And don't forget, too, is that liberals had had their way from the time of the New Deal, from 1932 up until 1980. 1980 really marks is the demarcation for many on the end of the, the end of the New Deal and the end of government expansion. And it marks the time when power and ideas and notions shifted away from the individual, away from the government, back to the individual. Up until 32, from 1932 until 1980, the answer had always been more government. And the answer had as much come from Republicans as they had from Democrats. The answer was always more and bigger government. Reagan and the conservative movement and the tide of 1980 reverses all that. And really, that's the beginning of the end of the New Deal and the advent of new conservative new conservative ideas of take, figuring out ways of taking power away from the state and returning it to the individual. Reagan's time had come in 1980 because everything seemed to be in his favor, making his argument, making his points about Soviets in Afghanistan or high inflation or high interest rates. Everything pointed toward some conservative solution to the problems of America and the problems of the world. Yes, it was quite revolutionary when he stood up and said, government is not the solution, government is the problem. So it's a really a change absolutely. of perspective and absolutely. attitude. Yeah, absolutely. What president would ever say that? Going back to 1932, nobody. This is radical, and this is something we all have to remember too. Reagan was not an establishmentarianist. 
He was a he was a revolutionary. He was not a reactionary. He was a revolutionary because he always challenged the status quo. And you look on issue after issue after issue, whether he's running for president or he is president, he's always challenging the status quo on SCI, on tax cuts, on budgets, on various initiatives. But he's going against the desires of the, the status quo and of the establishment. So, you know, it didn't matter with media or uh, national politics. Reagan is always na- uh, anti-status quo. Looking back at his presidency, what would you say would be his greatest success? And where did he fall short of what he wanted to accomplish? He spoke often. The two shortcomings that he f- spoke of were getting control of federal spending, better control of federal spending. He always felt bad about that. But but he was happy about the peace dividend that came about. And he wanted to get to more about a, abortion, but he couldn't. He wanted to do more about abortion which is why he wrote the book when he was president of the United States, he wrote the book Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation, which is one of the few books ever penned by a president while he's a sitting president. And to read it is very eloquent defense of, of, of the life argument. I would say for me, the biggest accomplishment is, is stopping the Soviet Union, stopping the advance of the Soviet Union. That's as much as anything. And finding somebody in the Soviet Union, in Mikhail Gorbachev, with whom he could work to reduce the nuclear tension. You know, something like 1,000, no, 2,700 uh, intermediate range missiles were retired from Western from Western Europe. And that's just astonishing. And that all happened on Reagan's watch. Everybody thinks of Reagan as the nuclear cowboy, but he was very much a man of peace. I've always thought it was a shame that, that uh, Gorbachev got the Nobel Peace Prize, but Reagan didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. It, to me, it strikes me, it strikes me, it should have both gotten the Nobel Peace Prize. So these missiles are retired. The Soviets withdraw from Afghanistan. They withdraw from Africa. They withdraw from Nicaragua and uh, El Salvador. Case after case after case is that the world is expanding toward freedom and toward democratic capitalism, and the, the Soviet world is shrinking. And I think that Reagan not only ended the Cold War, he won the Cold War. Because Gorbachev, as much of a, of, of a reformer Gorbachev is, he's still a product of the Soviet system. And he would have, he would have, had he been able to get away with it, he would have gone for Soviet advances if, uh, if, if allowed to. But the Soviet Union had run into uh, Reagan, one, and two, they ran out of time and money. Now, we often hear people referring back to Reagan today. For those who would like to claim his mantle, be the next Reagan, what do they have to stand for? There's only one Ronald Reagan. I don't think Donald Trump, we have to mention Donald Trump. Donald Trump was in no way, shape or form the next Ronald Reagan, except he adopted Reagan's issues, which had become hard and fast issues inside the Republican Party. But in terms of his in terms of his personality, no, not no way, shape, or form. And anybody I've heard mention for 2024, none of them measures up to Ronald Reagan. Let's face it: there's only one George Washington, there's only one Abraham Lincoln, there's only one Teddy Roosevelt, there's only one Franklin Roosevelt, and there's only one Ronald Reagan. And to try to emulate him is a mistake. Reagan used to say to you know, remember his, one of his speeches. He used to say, don't trust me, trust yourself. 
And Reagan believed that. And I would tell the candidates, any candidate who's running today, is that don't trust Ronald Reagan. Trust yourself. You got to, you know, if you believe in these things, it's important that you articulate them. But believe in yourself first. So, Craig, we'd like to give our listeners a bit of a glimpse into the personal side of Ronald Reagan with a few short but insightful questions. Okay. Here we go. Past or present, who do you think his favorite president would be? Franklin Roosevelt was Ronald Reagan's first vote for president of the United States in 1932 when Reagan was just 21 years old. And he invoked Franklin Roosevelt often when he was president of the United States and uh, always embraced the optimism of, of Franklin Roosevelt. No question whatsoever. He was, he was utterly devoted to Franklin Roosevelt and uh, said so in his diaries in his book, uh, and as president of the United States. And as a matter of fact, when he accepted the nomination uh, in Detroit in 1980, in front of 17,000 Republicans, he invokes the memory of Franklin Roosevelt, not some Republican president, not Abraham Lincoln, not Teddy Roosevelt, but he tells these Republicans about Franklin Roosevelt. It's quite astonishing. Can't see that happening today, can you? (laughs) No, you can't. Not that type of bipartisanship. That's that's why you have the phrase Reagan Democrat, because Reagan was constantly reaching across the aisle. And as a matter of fact, in uh, 1980, he received uh, something uh, like one third of the Democratic votes in the United States. So he received the Republican vote and then he got at least one third, if not more, of the of the Democratic vote. If the great communicator were around today, would he be a personal user of Twitter or Facebook? Yes. Yes, yes. Ronald Reagan would use all forms of communication. You know, in the 1930s, commercial television was new, and yet Reagan mastered it. In the 1940s, talking pictures were new, and yet Reagan mastered that. In the 1950s, commercial television was new, but Reagan mastered that. And then later, he mastered the soundbite of the television. So if Reagan was alive today... He would be using Twitter and, and, and Facebook and any, any other form of communication whatsoever. He wouldn't be obscene like Donald Trump, but, he'd be, he, but he would be quoting. <laughs> Responsibly. The he would be a responsible user. Yes, exactly. All right. So we know that Nancy was the most important person in his life. Yes. Other than Nancy, who was the one person he most enjoyed the company of? Uh, maybe... It's a tough Maybe, one. yeah, I got to think about this. Maybe, let's see, um, his uh, Edmies. Ronald Reagan was asked, was once asked to whom he would turn in a crisis. And he replied immediately, he said, Edmies. I don't know if there was any one person, but there, there were people he enjoyed at certain points. Mike Deaver, he enjoyed Mike's company because Nancy enjoyed Mike. He enjoyed, he enjoyed Jim Baker more in a policy sense. He enjoyed William French Smith, but, you know, in a legal framework. Reagan was a loner. He he never opened up completely to individuals. But there were people who would let, let, let's, let's peek in. And uh, some of the people I mentioned also is, uh, I can't think of his name, is Cap Weinberger was an old friend. His, uh, his uh, secretary of the interior, his name escapes me, Judge, Judge Clark. Bill Clark. He enjoyed, he enjoyed Bill, Bill Clark's uh, attention. And then the kitchen cabinet from his early days, he liked to sit down with them and 
you know, uh, Ray would have a cup of coffee or a glass of iced milk, uh, something like that, and talk with them. Really, Reagan most most enjoyed his own company, the time being alone. There was there were people, you know, at the ranch that he worked with, like Scott, who was on his uh, who was on his uh, Secret Service detail, on his uh, on his California Highway Patrol detail. Uh, he enjoyed working at the ranch with Scott. He enjoyed he enjoyed different people at different points in points in his life in his lifetime and where he was. But I don't think there was any one there was never any one person that he enjoyed all the time. Most often, Reagan enjoyed being by himself. It's a very good question, but and it's very elusive because Reagan is such a a uh, uh, interesting individual. Is such a multi-dimensional individual that uh, he uh, there's no there's no one there's no one indiv- individual. All right, let's get into the movie business a little bit. He starred in several movies himself, but did he have a favorite movie that he liked to watch to enjoy? Oh boy, yes, he lo- yes, yes, yes. He liked to watch. Reagan was in something like fifty-five or fifty-six movies in Hollywood. His last movie he made in 1964 called The Killers, and it was a remake of the uh, of the Hemingway novel. He hated that movie. Hated, hated. It was the only time in his, in his movie career where he, where he played a bad guy, and he slaps famously slaps Andrew Dickinson. He hated that movie, and never went to see it. Absolutely refused to see it. Now he liked he loved New Rockney All American, and he loved uh, King's Row which were two movies that were the high point of Reagan's acting career. Uh, and these movies he watched over repeatedly. He watched both these movies. There were some movies, you know, everybody talks about Bedtime for Bonzo. He took it, he took, he took it lightly. He laughed about it. He joked about it. But he was never down on it. You know, if it was on TV, he might watch it. Or he might watch Hellcats of the Navy. Or he might watch himself in other movies. But King's Row... And New Rockney were two were his two favorite movies. I'm watching them tonight. And finally, Craig, what's your favorite quote or moment from his presidency? Oh man, you know I have I have a lot of, of favorite Reagan quotes. I really do. I need to brush up on it too. I liked the '64 speech, and I liked him quoting his quote from Winston Churchill in the '64 speech. He quoted Churchill saying, "Is is that?" When great forces are on the move, we learn that we're spirits and not animals. And there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. That was, was I don't know if there's a quintessential Ronald Reagan, but it summed up Reagan's philosophy very, very well. Is that, you know, we're just not blobs here on the planet Earth, but we have an obligation to ourselves and to, uh, to others around us. Craig, you know, we're, we're such fans of your work. What What is next for you, and where can people learn more about your work? Oh, well, um, they can go to um, craigshirley.com, last I checked. And actually, Alan, I am I'm currently working. I'm finishing uh, April 1945. It's going to be a, kind of a companion book to my book, December 1941, because so much happens, as you know, in April 1945. FDR dies. We discover Auschwitz, Okinawa takes place the Battle of Okinawa, Truman becomes president, uh, Hitler commits suicide. There's so much history that one month. So I'm, I'm just finishing now April, the book April 1945, 
And then I'm going back to writing uh, more uh, Reagan books, including one book that, I've, uh, which is kind of the subject of our conversation. This one is titled uh, the, the Search for Reagan. Uh, and I got the idea from um, The Search for Churchill by uh, by Sir Martin Gilbert. And and this is really about what is Reagan's real philosophy. What You know, Reagan has been so mis-thrown uh, uh, out of shape and um, misinterpreted and misunderstood. So I'm going to, uh, I've already written the first chapter. And uh, so that's going to be my next Reagan book, uh, which is probably going to be uh, about uh, Reagan's uh, philosophy. We'll, uh, we'll definitely want you back on American Photos then. Okay. I'd love to I'd hear about that anytime. when we're finished. Would, <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'd love to be on anytime, Alan. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, likewise. I did too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from POTUS number 40, quote, There are no constraints on the human mind, no walls around the human spirit, no barriers to our progress, except those we ourselves erect.